God, thank you for enabling us to praise you. Because underneath that, it means you've given us love for you. You've taken hearts that were proud and cold and hard and indifferent and selfish and turned in on ourselves, and you've, you've opened them up, you've softened and set them free so that we can see you and see that you are the God of grace and truth, and we can love you and praise you and enjoy you. This is only because you have been kind and gracious to us. And our hearts, even, even with all of that joy, are incapable of possessing, of holding, containing all the glory that's already ours in Christ. We cannot even comprehend the depth and breadth and height and length and the surpassing worth of the love of God in Christ Jesus. But we want to, we want to hold more of it than we have to this point. So, Lord, our hearts and minds, our emotions are stirred as we sing praise to you and as we think about the fact that when we, as your covenant people in Jesus Christ, have been in your presence glorified for 10,000 years, we've just begun to scratch the surface of the joys and delights that you've prepared for us. Lord, cause us, enable us to believe that. We confess that in these mortal bodies and in this fallen world, we struggle to believe that, even though we say we believe it. So, Lord, help us, enable us to, to grasp together this morning with one another something more of who you are and of what you have in store for your people. Use your word to that end. Come and by your Spirit work in and among us, we pray. Because we can do nothing apart from you. We need you. We want to be with you. We want to be like you. We love you, and yet our obedience and our faith is weak. And so, Lord, draw near to us, we pray. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We've, uh, for a number of months now, as you know, um, if you've been here, you know this, I I suppose, but... We've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and uh, so we continue to do that this morning. We're in the 12th chapter of Mark, Mark chapter 12, uh, verses 13 through 17. So I want to ask you to either turn there in your Bible or to uh, find the passage printed there in the bulletin, and it will be uh, very helpful to have that in front of you as we look at it. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And let's remember that uh, what we're about to read is unique in that it is the Word of God breathed out by the Holy Spirit through, in this case, Mark, who gives eyewitness testimony about the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is God's Word. This is no less reliable than if God Himself appeared and spoke to you in an audible voice. This is God's Word. So let's hear it and receive it as such. And they sent to Him, that is to Jesus, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap Him in His talk. 
And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Without question, the dominant reality, the organizing theme in each of the Gospels is this notion of the kingdom of God. Um, everyone who has studied the Gospels agrees with that, that this is the central theme that's being presented uh, by each of the Gospel writers. It's certainly true in Mark. We see right from the beginning, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. So even Jesus' understanding of his own ministry is centered around the arrival of the kingdom of God. Now, of course, he spends the rest of his ministry uh, in his teaching and in his miracles and his actions demonstrating the, the character of this kingdom, and he has to do that over and over and over and over, largely because not… well, let me put it this way, it was not because his audience was ignorant completely of the presence or the, the reality of the kingdom of God that was very much in the current uh, mindset. It was very much a current idea, current doctrine, a, a current expectation. The, the problem was misunderstanding, misapprehensions, distortions about the character of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is continually uh, clarifying, well, what is the kingdom of God? What's it like? How does one enter into it? And one of the things that you see continually in Jesus' ministry, one of the things that He's always demonstrating is that the kingdom of God leaves people, as it leaves the audience at the end of our passage, astonished. Uh, the, the word there is used, it's an emphatic word, it's exceedingly astonished. They marveled at Him, they were speechless. Well, that's the kingdom of God. It's astonishing, it's breathtaking, it's surprising, it's that's the title of the sermon, not what you'd expect in many different ways. Now, Mark eleven fifteen through Mark 13, verse 2, records a series of confrontations between Jesus and the religious leadership in Jerusalem. We saw that conflict last week, and again today we see it. And what we see here is that another wave of opponents is coming to Jesus, Wave after wave, as we'll see at this point in this gospel, wave after wave of opposition comes, and here comes another wave of people who come. Specifically, it's some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians, who we'll talk about in a minute, who have been sent to trap Jesus in His talk. 
That's their purpose. That's their mission. Now, if we're going to understand their trap and their mission and, and as they move toward Jesus, then there's some background that we have to understand. Uh, and so, the, the first point here is the tax. Here, here's, here's our points today. The tax, the trap, the surprise, and the bigger picture. Okay, that's the outline for today. The tax, the trap, the surprise, and the bigger picture. So the tax, this is something we, we have to understand if we're going to understand what's going on in this passage. Uh, at this point in history, uh, Palestine has been under the direct rule of the Roman Empire for about 25 years. Since the year 6 AD, they were under direct control by the Roman Empire. Before that, they were under indirect control by the Roman Empire, so it wasn't altogether new, but Rome had to actually put boots on the ground in Palestine because it was a difficult area, and they, so they imposed direct governance of this area in Palestine. And one of the results of that direct government was a tax that was imposed on everyone just for the pleasure of living in their empire. And that's the tax that we read about here in this passage. Now, some citizens went along with this fairly willingly, found ways even to make it profitable. We think in the Gospels, for instance, of the tax collectors, uh, men like Matthew and Zacchaeus. They figured out how to make that arrangement work for them financially. So some people had, had come to terms with this and had, had sort of put their eggs in the Roman basket, so to speak. And the Herodians that we read about here in this passage are such a group of people. Uh, these were Jewish men who had... Entered into political alliance with the Roman government, and particularly with the Herods, hence the name Herodians. Not very creative, perhaps, but it gets the job done. Their interests were bound up with the abilities of the Herods to rule successfully, which they sometimes did and they sometimes did not. So the Herodians had a vested interest in the ability of these representatives of Rome, the Herods to rule Palestine. They were, as some people uh, say, in an unholy alliance with Rome. Okay? These are the Herodians. Now, on the other hand, you have the Pharisees, very different, different interests, more familiar group to us probably. Uh, these were the more sectarian uh, Jewish teachers of the law. They hated Roman rule. They dealt with it. They learned to submit to it begrudgingly. Uh, part of this was national pride, being ruled in your own land by a foreign power. Part of it was heavy taxation. But a significant part of it, which, which is important for this text, is that there was, a, there was a resistance to Roman rule for this reason. We believe that God is our king and that to pay tax to some Gentile pagan king or emperor is idolatry. Now, um, don't be too impressed because that was more about them than it was actually about God. As you can see from the character of their life, they weren't terribly concerned about submitting to God's kingship. However, there was a, a theological slash political idea that we, will, we don't want to submit to Caesar because we only submit to God. And he has no, Caesar therefore has no claim on us. So, so this meant that at least to some of them, this idea of the tax was very troublesome. And to make it worse, you had to pay the tax with the emperor's coin, the denarius. may not sound very troublesome to you, to your ears, to hear that, but if you were to look at the denarius, uh, 
what you would see on the front side is a, an engraved picture of Tiberius Caesar, the garland around his head, and the inscription or the abbreviated inscription, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Okay, so you, you have to pay this tax to the Roman Empire with a coin that says that Caesar is divine. That's okay, that's provocative. And then on the flip side of the coin, it says it calls him a high priest. So this is a, this is a very charged, difficult environment for uh, the, the Jews living in Palestine under Roman rule. But here's the interesting thing. You take the Pharisees and you take the Herodians, but you would never expect to take them together on anything. But that's exactly who we've got here. The Pharisees and the Herodians, who don't agree on anything. One hates Rome, the other loves Rome. One's trying to promote the tax, one's despising the tax, but they're jointly coming together, sent by some of the chief priests, perhaps, by some of the other Pharisees, perhaps. They've sent some of their trainees out. Well, they've sent them out to trap Jesus nonetheless. Nothing brings people together like a common enemy. And in this case, a shared hatred of Jesus was the glue that held them together. Now, this is part of the picture. This is the context for the trap uh, that they want to set for Jesus. And in fact, the word we see here, if you look again at the text and you find there in verse 13 that they were sent to trap him in his talk, this word trap is a word that's commonly used to describe hunting an animal in order to eat it. Violent imagery, vivid imagery that describes their real intention. So, they spring into action. We see it here in verse 14. And what do they begin with? Very interesting, isn't it? How they begin. They've formulated their plan. They've come to Jesus, and here's their plan. They're going to begin with flattery. Oh, teacher, you're so good and true, and we've heard your teaching is so reliable. You don't worry about public opinion. You don't tell people what they want to hear. You're not swayed by what others think of you. We know that when we come to you, we can expect the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. It's fair and impartial. We know that what we'll get from you is good. Now, we have a little question for you, okay? So they set him up. They flatter him. They, they try to bait him into saying something controversial so that they can close the trap. Now, what's the question that they ask? Here's the trap. Is it lawful, that is, is it lawful according to God to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, they want to force Jesus to take sides. It's a yes or no question. Sometimes you've been in a situation like that where you you can get angry because somebody's asking you a yes or no question. You know it's not a yes or no issue. And they're trying to trap you. Well, that's what they're doing. They're drawing Jesus into a trap. They want him to take sides. And it really is a very good plan. In fact, it seems foolproof in this way. If Jesus says, uh, no, it is not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then they can bring him to the Roman authorities on the charges of sedition. He's done. And they would expect him to say that if he's the kind of Messiah that they think the Messiah is going to be, right? If the Messiah is a political liberator, if he's come to set them free from Rome, then of course he would oppose the tax. So, on the one hand, if he says, no, it's not lawful, they've got him. 
at the hands of the Roman authorities. But if, just in case, he says, yes, it's lawful, well, they've got him too because then the Pharisees have got him in their grips because what kind of Messiah would side with Rome after all? So he's dead either way, at least they think so. This is the trap. They think they have him dead to rights. Heads I win, tails you lose, sort of thing. But once again, Jesus not only escapes their trap, but turns it around on them in a way that causes them to be astonished and to marvel. So let's look at his answer, the surprise. Okay, what does Jesus say? It's one of the most remarkable, well-known, wise sayings uh, in all the Scriptures. Let's look again at what he says. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So perhaps these men who were so troubled about the denarius with this idolatrous image on it weren't quite so troubled uh, to not use it. Uh, So bring me a denarius and let me look at it, Jesus says. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So his answer comes essentially in two parts. The first part, he says, okay, the coin has Caesar's image on it, his inscription, it belongs to him, give it to him. Second part, he says, or he implies, but you have God's image and inscription on you. And so give yourselves to him, your whole selves. You see what he's saying? It's so, so simple, it's so brief, it's so tightly packed but incredibly profound. I want to try to capture it by highlighting two things that are bound up in what Jesus says here. Here's the first thing. Jesus teaches that we are obligated to honor and obey human government. This is the emphasis of his first statement, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We are obligated to honor and obey human government. Now, Jesus is not just saying, give Caesar the tax, pay the tax. There's a word in Greek for give. The word that Jesus uses is give back. Give back to Caesar. What is his? That's significant. He's telling them, you know, this money, it's not yours anyway. Why do you have it? Why are you able to produce it? Because God has given you a government who provides services for you and currency, and so you owe it to Caesar to pay the tax. Give it back to him. It belongs to him. So it's interesting. They ask about the tax. Narrow question, yes or no. Jesus says, you give back to Caesar whatever's his due. Now imagine how well that went over. The Pharisees hated and resented the governing authority of Rome but Jesus provokes them to answer, to ask and answer this question, who was it that really put Rome in authority after all? It was God. So Jesus is telling them that they have an obligation to the Roman government. This is what the Apostle Paul is getting at in Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant, 
Minister is the word there, for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. That's Paul in Romans 13. Peter speaks very similarly in 1 Peter chapter 2. That's much briefer. Be subject for the Lord's sake, Peter says. And remember, by the way, let's not forget that they were writing these things from within the struggles and tensions and hardships of the Roman Empire. They weren't writing from an ivory tower. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who, who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Peter adding to what Paul says, actually says there's an evangelistic component to Christians honoring and obeying civil government. You'll, put to, to, you'll silence the foolish accusations of other people when they see that you fear the emperor or the president or the government more than they do. Okay, this is remarkable. But Peter and Paul are simply unpacking the things that Jesus said uh, 30 years or so earlier. We are obligated... It is God's will for us to obey and honor those who are in authority over us in the civil government. And this does not depend on the circumstances. Are rulers sometimes unjust? Yes. Might you have legitimate complaints with certain laws or regulations or what have you? Of course. But Jesus was not ignorant of that. Neither were Peter and Paul when they wrote this by the Holy Spirit. And yet they, they repeatedly instruct the church to submit to, to pray for, to honor, to obey, to pay taxes to those who govern them, and we must do the same. Now, maybe some of you are sitting there and you're asking, well, but what about when God and Caesar are pulling me in opposite directions? What if those who are in authority over me are asking me, requiring me to disobey God. Well, in that case, if you're in that case, and that would be one caution, is that we tend to think of ways to escape what God tells us to do by hypothetical, you know, tight spots. Uh, if you're in that kind of spot, then it's clear God calls you to obey Him and not man. Acts 4, when the apostles were ordered to stop preaching the gospel. No, of course we're not going to stop preaching the gospel. Is it judge for yourselves? Is it right for us to obey God or man? However, the overwhelming focus of the New Testament 
is this teaching that we're to, we're to honor and obey those in authority over it. Render unto Caesar. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Honor, taxes. Okay, that's the first thing Jesus says. Secondly, he teaches that we should not put our hope in human government. We should not give all of ourselves to human government. The Pharisees thought that belonging to God's kingdom meant shaking off any other kind of government. The Herodians, on the other hand, were putting all their eggs in the basket of human government, the Romans especially. Their hope, their confidence, their sense of security and stability was in the success of government. Now, it seems to me that Christians can sometimes fall into that trap as well. If some Christians tend to despise government, others tend to be over pre- overly preoccupied with it, to invest themselves too heavily in it, to place too much of their weight on it. I'll give you some examples. I'll ask you three sets of questions, or pose three sets of questions to you, I'll ask you to consider them. Here's the first set of questions Do you read and think and talk more about politics? than about the eternal realities of the kingdom of God. What dominates your reading, your tweets, your Facebook posts, your, your, your speaking, whatever? What, what does that tell you about you? Second set of questions. Do you, even if unintentionally, live as if the growth of the church and of God's kingdom depends upon the success of a particular political party or ideology? Let me say that again. Do you, even if unintentionally, live as if the, the success of God's kingdom and His church depend upon the success of some political party or ideology? Third set of questions, really, that these two, last two sets are not sets, they're just individual questions. Third question, do you think the church needs to gain more political or cultural influence if it's going to thrive? One of the shocking things that Jesus says about his kingdom is that it is completely unhitched from any particular set of circumstances or governmental authorities, kingdoms. The progress of God's kingdom does not depend upon the progress of any country, our own or some other. That's why we can go from Athens, Georgia, to Uganda, to wherever else in the world, and know, like Martin Luther wrote from the Psalms, his kingdom is forever, and it is everywhere. It doesn't mean we should be indifferent. We should be responsible citizens. We should seek to think Christianly about everything that's going on around us in our setting, seek to be faithful, seek to be aware. It's even a noble thing to be involved in politics work for righteous change, care about these things. That's not the point. But what Jesus is saying, he's raising a question of priority and emphasis. He's saying, don't make your political freedom or your political situation the number one priority in your life. And Jesus says this, and that means it's worth reflecting on whether or not you might accidentally be doing that. Don't make that the number one priority in your life. You can serve God anywhere, freely in your heart, under the severest of regimes. And that's happened time and time and time and time and time and time and time again in history. Human government has a legitimate but limited claim upon you. So submit to it and obey it, 
but do not give your whole self to it because it's only the kingdom of God that has a limitless claim on you. So submit to him and obey him. Give back to Caesar what's his. Taxes, honor, respect, fine, good. Give to God everything. Honor him, obey him, serve him, love him. And that, See, th- this gets us to the bigger picture. This is the last point I want to make from the text. You've got the tax and the test and the surprising response of Jesus. But there's a, if all you see in this text is a couple of things and maybe a handful of implications uh, of the, the, the way the Christian relates to the, to the government, then you've not yet seen this text fully. You've not really seen everything Jesus is saying and doing in this exchange because at a much deeper level, what we see about Jesus here in this passage is that this king with all the authority in heaven and earth has come not only to conquer but to suffer and ultimately to die for sin and in doing so to call for our undivided allegiance. And this is not, this is not a gospel add-on, okay? I'm not you know, just importing this into the text so that I can say I've preached the gospel. I think it's something that's explicitly and intentionally there because of Mark's effort to record it and particularly the way he records Jesus' first words to his opponents in verse 15. Look again at what he says there. Knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, why put me to the test? I've wondered this week, how, how did he say that? In anger, in frustration, but he asks, why do you put me to the test? When Mark, Jesus said that in Aramaic, that was his native tongue, but Mark writes his gospel in Greek, and when Mark records this question, why do you put me to the test, he uses a word that draws us all the way back to Mark chapter 1. It's the same word that Mark uses to describe what Satan was doing to Jesus in the wilderness, which Jesus identifies, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I think Mark is intentionally drawing our eyes back to another place where this same sort of testing began to take place. As Satan, just as God promised back in Genesis 3, clashes and wages war against Jesus, the seed of the woman. That's, that's the battle that's waged throughout all of human history is the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. God's people, His covenant people, and, and the world who opposes them. And you see it's just interwoven all throughout history in all kinds of different ways. But here in Mark's gospel, here in Mark 12, as Jesus stands probably still in the temple area being tested and trapped and hunted by these wicked men, the bigger picture of what's happening is he is willingly subjecting himself to the rudeness and the hatred and the mocking and the unbelief and the scorn and the attacks of his haters. Not because there's any outside force causing him to do that against his will, but because willingly in love he's subjecting himself to Satan, to sinful men, to sin itself, to affliction, and even to the judgment of God, so that he could be, in just about three days' time from here, 
the spotless sacrifice for the sins of his people. Jesus says, why do you put me to the test? And he lets us in. He opens a window and lets us into this great clash that's going on here on the stage of world history as Jesus doesn't say, you know what, that's enough. I've, I've had enough. You will not talk to me that way like so many of us would do. Jesus doesn't do that. He goes down and he goes down and he goes down and down and down and suffering blamelessly and sinlessly in order that he could be fit to bear God's wrath for us, for you and for me. And we should never lose sight of this, to, to, to begin to reflect and meditate on the fact that here stands Jesus in the courts of the temple, the temple which was built as a shadow of him, built by people who he made, built in the context of history that he'd been ruling over. And he willingly stands there in the flesh and receives the mocking of men because he had been sent to be the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, to be a sacrifice for people like you and me. We should never stop marveling and wondering at that, because what happens, friends, is as you learn to do that, what you'll experience, and what many of you I know have experienced, is that your joy and your strength gets deeper and wider and bigger and stronger as you see all that Jesus Christ willingly endured, the depths of suffering that He entered into for you because of love, because of love. Jesus is a king with absolute authority, and He will wield it when He comes back. We discussed that last week. But one of the things that we see here is that He is also a king who has willingly suffered and died in order to secure salvation and eternal life for a people he loves so dearly. And this great king has issued a great invitation. And that great invitation is that every one of you is invited. Jesus does not stand and, and exclude. Yes, he says only those who are called will respond, but there's the free offer of the gospel as well. Anyone who will come to Jesus, he will never turn away. This great king extends an invitation. Every one of you is invited to come, not just to sit on his porch, not just to hang out out in his yard somewhere, but to come into his house, to feast with him at his table, to live with him in his kingdom forever. So yet again in Mark, the question that comes is how are you going to respond to Jesus? How have you been? How are you now responding to Jesus? Indifferent? Putting it off till another time? Skeptical? I have my doubts? Fearful? I don't know that I belong? The, the invitation is open. He stands here because He has come as the Savior. Now, every one of you sitting here today is a citizen of this world. You're born into that, and you're part of the kingdom of this world. But the question for you here today is, are you also a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus? Have you ever come under His rule? Have you ever tasted the freedom that comes from bowing to the King? Maybe everything in you says, I bow to nobody. 
I've been hurt too much in the past. I've been on the wrong end of abused authority in the past. But there is no freedom. There is no joy. There is no delight like the freedom, the joy, and the delight that come when you finally bow to King Jesus. Hail to the King, right? All of my life, take my life and let it be. Consecrated, Lord, to Thee. All of it. All that I am. All that I have. There will be a time when that decision can no longer be made. When He comes again in His glory. But today, if you haven't already, you can freely enter the kingdom by embracing the King who offers Himself freely to you. And if you do, you'll receive life and salvation and joy and peace. And if you already have received Him and are living under His reign, you know from experience you, you have to keep coming. You have to keep coming. To keep coming with Him. And as you do, you know what you find? You receive from Him what no Caesar can ever take away from you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the great wisdom of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you especially for his humility, for his willing suffering on our behalf. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did not consider it beneath you to be humiliated for us and for our salvation, to bear shame and scoffing rude in our place condemned you stood, sealed our pardon with the blood, with your blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And so, Father, as we come to the table to have fellowship with you, we confess our need for you. We thank you for speaking to us in your word and pray that you would continue to work on us by your word and your spirit. Teach us to submit to authority that's over us because it comes from you. Teach us to place our whole weight and trust on you and on your kingdom, not on the kingdoms of this world. And keep us looking forward to that day which is coming when the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Lord, we long for that day. Keep us alert and awake and leaning toward it. In Christ we pray, amen. The elders who are uh, helping with communion would come forward. <clears throat>